Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to Sox Machine Live. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Wednesday night, May 29th, as the Chicago White Sox just wrapped up their series against the Kansas City Royals, and it was a fun time for the White Sox as they swept the Royals. And now they have a four-game series against the Cleveland Indians to look forward to this weekend as the White Sox are now 26-29. and 29, A good way to bounce back from the trouncing that they had in Minneapolis this past weekend. There's a lot to discuss on this show, so let's get to it. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Great to see the White Sox sweep the Royals, but again, there is more drama between the two teams as Tim Anderson returns to the lineup after his hand injury and in his first at bat since the bat flipping incident against the Royals he gets hit in the head do you think it was intentional I do not it was a change up and um, I'm reading the tweets coming in after the game and Renteria agreed that it wasn't intentional there was a change up and uh, he seemed to harbor no ill will it seemed more like, you know, I wonder since it was a changeup versus like a breaking ball, you know, if an home plate umpire when making the decision on something like that can tell, you know, uh, a straight pitch versus a breaking pitch. You know, maybe if it's a, a curveball that he that slips, you know, and, and goes, uh, you know, 85 miles per hour and hits him, no big deal versus a changeup. But it, as I wrote in the recap, uh, the Royals really suffered no consequences from Brad Keller throwing at Anderson. He was going to leave the game anyway. 
they arranged it so his start, uh, his missed uh, start timed up with an off day and so they could rearrange the rotation. So they were not inconvenienced at all. So I think, if nothing else, Mark Carlson really took it in his hands to at least have the Royals feel some kind of inconvenience for hitting Anderson the first time. Is that fair, though? I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment. Well, no, I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's intentional. I don't think he's playing catch up. Like I said, okay. I'm guessing that he saw a pitch come up and in. It was a straight pitch, not a breaking pitch. He might not have, you know, it, you know, based on how close it came to, you know, hitting, you know, solid contact with head, you know, he might not have registered the radar gun reading or, or even kind of calculated in his head how fast it was coming in. He just thought something needed to be done based on what had happened entering the game. And he made the quick decision to do so. I think, you know, to his credit, he gave Martin Maldonado and Ned Yost a lot of leeway in arguing their case. They were up in his face. They were screaming mm-hmm. at him. They, he could have easily, I think under other circumstances, he could have easily given them the heave-ho. And, uh, you know, maybe nobody would have thought twice about it. But he, he let them vent. And uh, and, I, and I thought, you know, maybe that's not quite, you know, making up for it you know, when it comes to the Royals side. But, uh, you know, based on, you know, I guess what had happened entering the game and how close it came to being, you know, a pitch that could have done damage. You know, I guess that's what he thought was proper. Is it the right decision? No. Um, but yeah, yeah, maybe I would say it was not the right decision in terms of like Glenn Sparkman, like you know, his, his pitch, it, it, he wasn't responsible for what Keller did. The pitch slipped on a changeup. So individually it wasn't fair given the way Anderson was staring him down. Um, and, and given what could have maybe happened if Lopez came out and went firing, you know, maybe it was like, I guess to, uh, to look at it in a utilitarian way, maybe it was ultimately a good decision to decrease the tensions of the game overall. Cause maybe Lopez comes out the next inning, throws a purpose pitch, and then it's, you know, benches clear all over again. So yeah, maybe that's one way I can understand that it was the right call, but I think individually it was fair, unfair to Sparkman. Uh, maybe it was yeah, ultimately, uh, it did more uh, more good than harm overall, but it's hard to know. And yeah, and as you mentioned, the Kansas City Royals have no leeway, maybe for the rest of the season. And there's 10 games left, Jim, between the White Sox and Royals. Should we expect more bad blood this season between these two teams? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, based on the way... Carlson handle it. That's the other thing too, is maybe, you know, with, you know, with so many games left that sending a message that, uh, you know, what Keller did was unacceptable and that they're watching, you know, that they're under the microscope now, maybe that keeps the Royals from acting stupid. And then I, I would think <laughs> if the Royals don't act stupid, then the White Sox won't retaliate because the White Sox tend not to, you know, engage in justice like that, uh, you know, unless they're getting, you know, pounded inside and, and getting hit and hands broken and everything like that. And the umpires won't issue a warning. So that's, that's my guess. And, and maybe, you know, even looking even further, maybe that's what the ejection serves. Cause there's a lot of people in Kansas city tomorrow on the Kansas city morning sports shows are going to say the inning before Ronaldo Lopez sent Hunter Dozier to the ground. Yeah, but with the pitch that went way inside. Yeah, there's no history there, and Lopez's command was off. He was missing up early in the game. He was getting under his pitches. You know that that's what tends to happen when he misses. Usually not that close, mm-hmm. but you know without the history, you can't really say anything about that. You know, just that it, it was a pitch that missed. You know, when you drill Anderson um, and and you know do it to inflict harm 
to send a message, then you've you've lost the benefit of the doubt, and and that's I think what comes into play there. Okay, sure. And I'm not. I guess I'm playing devil's advocate here. No, this is it's worth doing. But if you're a Royals fan and you see what Lopez did, okay, is Lopez trying to get revenge for Tim Anderson? Even though you're in the third game of this series, and there was ample time for somebody else in the pre- two previous games of this series to do so. I- I'm trying to look at it from yeah, I the Chicago point of view. I I was really worried at first. Because, man, if you're trying to send a message to Tim Anderson, going by his head is total bullcrap. And it's a Bush League move, and I wouldn't put it past Ned Yost because he's just one of those old-school type of baseball guys. But looking at a Kansas City point of view and what they're going to say during their sports talk radio shows, they're going to point at to the previous inning in which Lopez sent Dozier to the ground. Yeah, well, like I said, you know, they, they came out ahead of the last... Um the last, uh, <laughs> I guess, some uh, brawl or whatever. It was they came out ahead. Brawl, but yeah, they won yeah, they the came game. Out ahead. You know, and they, they, you're right. Brad Keller barely got what a slap on the wrist of anything. Yeah, Tim Anderson missed more games in, in you know, when you really consider it. Anderson missed more games than Keller did for getting hit by Keller. It, it, it's the stu- one of the stupidest things about this season. We're going to get to another stupid thing in a moment during this show, uh, Monday's weather. But... I'm wondering on how Major League Baseball is going to handle it. I don't think this bad blood is over. I wonder if something is going to happen in Kansas City. I, you know, I, I would say it's over for now. Uh, you know, should nothing happen, should there be no dramatic turns or, uh, you know, no bat flips? Or, yeah, I would say that, you know, Anderson basically, after you take a pitch, you know, and, and you come through the winning double, like, you know, uh, you can rub it in a bit. You know, that's that's his right. Now, if they keep throwing at him, then I think, you know, the Royals might, but if, if, if you know, other umpires follow the lead of Mark Carlson and are so quick to pull the trigger on an ejection without a warning, um, it just seems like it would be counterproductive. It's always counterproductive to throw at a guy, put a guy on base, but I think it would be more so, like, you know, if they're, if they're racking up more and more suspensions, you know, if Ned Yost is getting suspended, if, you know, Keller is getting suspended for 10 games instead of five for being a repeat incident and so forth. Yeah, I, I think there's only so many ways the Royals can go from here, you know, before they're really, uh, you know, earning a terrible reputation and cost themselves some serious games and money. So I, yeah, I'm inclined to think that's possible, you know, should Anderson come through the big hit, but I don't think anybody in the Whites, else in the White Sox will do it. So it's mainly up to Anderson. And I think, you know, he, you know given... Uh, how Carlson protected him, um, you know, with the ejection. I think that uh, the Royals know that they're being watched with how they they pitch him. So I, I could see I could see the tension being there, but I could also see like this being clear enough to where it might bubble up here and there, but nothing that you know results in benches clearing again. I'm looking forward to the reception that Tim Anderson gets in Kansas City. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see him getting booed with the whatever crowd shows up. Yeah, I mean, there's got to be maybe 7,000 people in the stands because the Royals are in last place, but we'll see. I, I don't think this is over. I mean, there's been bad blood between the Royals and White Sox for a while. And as I mentioned, there are 10 games left in this season between these two teams. I guess from what we have seen, I mean, this all this goes all the way to the captains of attitude, right, of the 2016 season and what Samarja and Sale and that whole brouhaha are the White Sox and Royals, if you had to pick the top three rivals, 
the top three chief rivals of the Chicago White Sox. Are the Kansas City Royals in that top three? Yeah, I would say so. The Twins are, they haven't really been on the same wavelength as the Twins and the Tigers. Yeah, I think the Tigers and Twins are on the same level right now, and the Indians are, have just been too good for it to matter. So I think the Royals are, yeah, I would say the Royals are there right now. I think the captains have added to that, you know, given that they're both gone and that there's been so much roster turnover on the on both teams since then, that you know, that might be more of a, a low hum at this point. But yeah, I can see, you know, reason to think that something might bubble up, but I just don't know if circumstances will allow it because I don't think the White Sox have any real instigators to pick it up if Anderson's not the one starting it. Well, it was sweet justice. Yeah. As Tim Anderson, as Jim mentioned, delivered the game-winning hit with the RBI double in the eighth inning, scoring James McCann, who also had a double, and ran as fast as he could to get to second base. Difference between 70-grade speed and 30-grade speed. Well, he he didn't run out of the box. <laughs> oh, he didn't? No, oh, he really, thought it he, was gone? He kind of jogged out of the box thinking he got it all, and uh, you know that's that's the kind of selective benching, which is why... <laughs> You know, when Rick Renteria handled those benchings, it's like, you can't really do that too many times because otherwise, you know, it throws the other ones in a starker relief. And yeah, he almost got caught uh, um, lollygagging a bit. Yeah. Well, he's a catcher. <laughs> he's a catcher that's playing a lot of innings yeah. right now. So there's a, hopefully there's not too much wear and tear on those knees. But also on Wednesday, uh, great to see you on Makata and Jose Bray who hit Apo Tacos. It's always fun. And the offense did just enough in this series to help support the pitching. Uh, and we did get a chance to see some really good pitching. We'll touch on Lucas Giolito in a moment. But Jim, from this series, uh, again, I mentioned as far as with Tim Anderson being suspended for being hit, uh, being one of the dumber things this season, another dumb thing happened on Monday and Monday's weather. Listen, there's nothing that any team can control unless you build a stadium with a retractable roof uh, to deal with the rain. But on how the White Sox, and I I don't know if it's the White Sox decision or if it's the umpire crew, uh, their decision to try to play out that game. I mean, you have a really long rain delay, hours long. And then you tried to squeeze enough play to get through the fifth inning to make it official. Uh, and then you have your hero of the game, Yomer Sanchez, delivering the tying hit and the game-winning hit, the walk-off, uh, on the next day. Uh, he even commented on how dangerous it was and it put all the players at risk, especially an injury risk. Moving forward, do you think that particular game in that situation – because Chicago's been getting a lot of precipitation uh, in 2019, that the White Sox and maybe even Major League Baseball are going to start handling rain delays a bit differently. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. Like when it comes to you know league-wide matters, I, in this case, I think it's the umpire's decision that's informed by the White Sox grounds crew. And I think Bossard miscalculated um, with the kind of storm. He said he was caught off guard by a cell that just popped up. But I think when it's a severe thunderstorm watch, cells can just pop up, uh, especially when there's stuff coming in behind it. Um, you know, stuff clearly coming in behind it. You can't really count on like two the minutes when, when you know, the weather is that severe. So I think he blew it a little bit, um, you know, with, you know, with the window that he gave the umpire. So I think it was a joint failure. Uh, but I know I think this is just going to be like a natural inclination for teams to try to push it, to get games in. And, you know, until, you know, if somebody got hurt, then maybe you could see maybe some, 
you know, say if like Yomer Sanchez uh, got a foot stuck and, and, and ruptured an Achilles or something like that because he was running in mud uh, trying to get the game tying single, then you could say, okay, you know, this is putting players in risk and, and there's a documentable incident of a player getting hurt by uh, a too callous decision to get the game in. But I think, you know, given that nobody got hurt, it was just a, a um, an ugly field and that ugly fields happen here and there all around baseball. I think it just happened to be a localized incident that was frustrating. And I know uh, my, my family was there at that game and my brother was sending pictures of a flooded craft craft cave. So, uh, yeah, everybody was at the park was wondering, you know, what they were doing. And yeah, it was just, uh, it was a mess. Yeah. I mean, you got fans that you're putting at risk, right? I, I guess if you're at a stadium, there's plenty of places, and with the way that guaranteed rate field is, is that if there was severe thunderstorm and people had to find shelter, there's plenty of shelter to find a guaranteed rate field. Bossard's explanation, man, is bizarre because there was a tornado that touched down in Dyer, Indiana, which is a 25-minute drive from guaranteed rate field uh, in northwest Indiana. So it's like... I don't know what radar you are looking at. Clearly, he wasn't watching Tom Skilling on WGN. Uh, so I just found Monday's weather situation really dumb. Uh, but, you know, it worked out for the White Sox. They end up winning that game, and they won Tuesday's game thanks to Lucas Giolito's great start. Uh, but before Giolito's great start, Ronaldo Lopez. As you mentioned, Jim, he's a bit wild and inconsistent. On Wednesday, Rick Renteria had him throw 118 pitches. Yeah, and this is coming after <laughs> this is coming after Carlos Rodon just went on the NBC Sports podcast with Chuck Garfine, and Rodon ad- admitted in a very open conversation that his elbow started to hurt when he approached 75 pitches. So here, Renteria, in my opinion, pulls a Robin Ventura, and he's just keeping the starter out there for unnecessary pitches and unnecessary wear and tear. But do you see a reason for Lopez to try and tough it out in the sixth inning? No, I mean, I guess the reason would be the two games in one day before, the one and a half games the day before, trying to get an extra out and trying to get the bullpen on, yeah, I guess, full clean innings instead of having to come in and sit and get back up. You know, that's really you know, the, the one explanation, which, you know, kind of, Makes sense a little bit, but not enough to cover like 15 pitches and two bad, especially at the top of the Royals order, you know, facing them a fourth time when his stuff is clearly on the wane. Um, it was funny because I watch games on MLB TV. So oftentimes I'm like a, uh, you know, a pitcher two behind. In this case, I think I happened to rewind to watch something and didn't like speed back up. To, so I was like a full batter behind, I think, or at least, you know, three or four pitches. And so I saw people saying like, I can't believe they're leaving him in. And I thought that was like, uh, the batter I was watching, it turns out I was like, oh, they're talking about that batter they left him in for. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was you know, so I was behind on just how surreal it was. And I guess this is something we haven't seen much from Renteria, partially because his starters have been so bad since he's been managing the team <laughs> that there haven't been many situations where you'd want to see it. You know, usually you know, maybe Lucas Giolito had a start where he gave up five runs in the first inning and then, you know, hung around through five. But in a lot of cases, uh, you know, when the starters are up to 100 pitches, they've basically given Renteria what they can, and, and the the hook is pretty clear. This is the one of the few times I can remember where Renteria did, you know, pull Robin Ventura and and hang with a pitcher, you know, two batters too long. And I'm hoping just because the day and a half before whatever, that was an isolated case, and then seeing the way Kelvin Herrera pitched. Um, yeah, well, pitched and fielded and, and kind of just manned his position overall. 
uh, you know, that was just uh, confusing in its own right. But, you know, he's been a mess. Fortunately, Alex Colomay has been as good as uh, Herrera hasn't. But it's, uh, you know, watching the way the bullpen, especially Herrera, handled, just like I can understand maybe a little bit Renteria's of try, uh, getting greedy and trying to get a full six out of Lopez. But it did get reckless, I think, especially, you know, to the last batter. But even I think it was two batters too long. Well, it's just it's a whole organizational thing right now. When it comes to pitching injuries, they have to be more aware of this. Yeah, I have they to really listen do. to that podcast. I have a, I have a bookmark. I'm going to listen to it uh, either tonight or tomorrow morning. Haven't got a chance yet, but um, yeah, I'm curious whether. And you know, part of it with Rodon is you know, given how many injuries he suffered, you know, whether that's specifically Rodon or you know, a usage case, um, hard to say. But yeah, it's, it's <laughs> as you mentioned, the timing certainly isn't great. No, it's not, especially in light of everything that's been going on for the White Sox. And their pitchers. And you got Rick Hahn's Q&A with friend of the podcast, James Fegan of The Athletic, wondering, you know, one day we'll not have all these injuries and guys' elbows blow up. Well, Rick, when you got your young starting pitcher trying to tough it out of a sixth inning when he had a six-run lead and now he's got 118 pitches in him, that's how guys get hurt. So I just, I don't know. It's head shaking and bizarre. Yeah. I was not actually a lot of off days coming up. So yeah, there you go. Positive. Yeah. Speaking of positive, let's talk about the good news. Uh, as it seems with every podcast that we record, we got to talk about five minutes of Lucas Giolito. Uh, <laughs> Lucas Giolito on the season now on the season has a two war on fan graphs. That is the second best in the American league behind Matthew Boyd of the Detroit Tigers, who's at two and a half war. And Giolito has a 1.8 war on baseball reference. Last year on baseball reference, Giolito was worth negative 1.3 war. So we've already seen a three win improvement via baseball reference war for Lucas Giolito from 2018 to 2019. So the league's most improved, most improved player uh, I think he showed off a new skill in his last start, Jim, being able to shake off a poor start to a game after giving up a three-run homer to Alex Gordon in the first inning. Was there any particular adjustment you saw Giolito go through in his last start to uh, last into the eighth inning? Well, yeah, given the the way it started and, and you know the double header starting at 640 and supposedly he didn't know that the game was starting at 640, it just might have been... How does that, okay, how does that happen? I don't know. I, I really don't know, especially since, like, we knew it was at 640, and <laughs> said that, you know, Renteria called Giolito knucklehead and said that he'd been told. So I don't quite know. Like, does he, is everybody in the bullpen just waiting for him? Or, <laughs> like, I, I don't quite get that. So, you know, maybe that was really the reason was that he was, you know, behind his preparation and took a few batters to find a groove, but, or maybe he needed, like, the, uh, uh, you know, the homer was like smelling salts to, you know, get him back on track. But no, yeah, after that happened, it was just mainly his, what he'd been showing, just really good fastball command, really, you know, just pumping the fastball up in the zone at the top of the zone, just above the top of the zone, uh, making it too hard for the Royals to lay off like multiple pitches. Occasionally they could lay off one, but then he'd just go back up there and they couldn't do it twice in a row. Or if they did do it twice in a row, then he came back with a change up low and, you know, and that was, uh, yeah, that was death. So it seems like just he's really making it simple on himself by getting ahead, uh, using his fastball to do like a lot of the heavy lifting and then just the changeup to finish him off. And in this case, you know, 26 swinging strikes and 14 were fastballs. You know, we've seen a lot of cases where, you know, the fastball sets it up and the changeup puts it away, but the, the fastball was his put away pitch and that even makes it simpler for him. 
Lurie Garcia had a really good series. In the two games he played, he both had three hits. He went six for eight. He also made a very nice catch. He made multiple nice catches in center field, tracking the ball well and catching them by the wall. But he robbed a home run. Little Lurie Garcia uh, pulling an Adam Engel and robbed Jorge Soler of a home run. He, he pulled an Adam Engel and a Melky Yeah, Cabrera. he did. <laughs> Because it was the home run robbery and then the trolls. Yes. Uh, any reason for him other than health uh, and preserving his hamstrings that he pulled three times last year? Any reason for Garcia not to play center field every game? Uh, not really. You know, before uh, this series, like he was, seemed to be getting in a little bit of a funk where he was swinging over a lot of uh, breaking balls low and in. Like they were just kept giving him the pitch and he couldn't lay off. And I think sometimes, you know, he's so aggressive that sometimes he can just get into where swing mode locks on and he can't disengage and he'll get in the bad counts and just have these ugly at bats. And, you know, maybe that's when he might need a breather or something like that. And, and you know, maybe uh, maybe part of it was the jolt that he took in the wall, too, that kind of threw him off uh, the, the, when he ran to the wall in Toronto. Maybe that uh, shook him up a little bit and threw him off his game. But. No, based on, on the outfield depth right now and the way Charlie Tilson plays out, he's a better outfielder than Charlie Tilson. So as long as he's producing uh-huh. and he seems to, you know, be providing a lot of energy, I don't really, you know, he's not the most uh, uh, typical leadoff hitter, but I kind of like him up there just because it seems like he has no fear. He doesn't really think like, you know, think of who's pitching him. He just wants, has an idea of what he can do with certain pitches. Like he'll take outside pitches, left field, he'll pull, you know, breaking pitches through the right side. You know, it seems like at least he does, you know, he, he does with the swing, what the pitch asks him to. Um, and sometimes it ends up in a first pitch pop-up and it's really uh, an ideal leadoff work. But I think given the few options that they have there and given that Moncada is having a bit of a strikeout binge again, you know, he's probably the best choice for it given this roster. And, you know, I don't, I don't mind watching him hit. Uh, so, you know, given the other leadoff options that, that probably makes him the most qualified. I know we don't really regard uh, in in a very good light a batting average. It can be an empty metric, but he's batting 293. And the, his bat up and the way that he swings, and as you mentioned, Jim, that he sprays the ball all over the field. Louis Garcia could be a 300 hitter. Yeah. Yeah, you know, a little bit of luck and and uh, yeah, and and yeah, I think batting average is. I think now with strikeouts being so prevalent that I think batting average is getting a little bit of respect back, just because hmm. it does mean something. Yeah, he doesn't walk, so in yeah. order for Lurie Garcia to have a decent on base percentage, he needs to have a high batting average. But here he is. I mean, he has his potential. You know, that whole trade when the White Sox acquired Lurie Garcia, I just thought that was a roster or money dump when they sent Alex Rios over to Texas. But, you know, Lurie Garcia has given the White Sox some value. And I don't know. He's starting to grow on me here. And yeah, his, his improvement, um, you know, it, being a switch hitter who really didn't have uh, much in the way of uh, like a repeatable swing and, and, and ability to barrel the ball. Uh, his improvement over the over the years, I think, you know, that you can give Todd Steverson some credit for that. You can give, uh, you know, Garcia credit for that. And I think you can also apply that to other switch hitters like Moncada. You know, Moncada's made some strides with his contact and, and you yeah, know, the strikeouts are bunching up on him again. But I think it's probably going to be a multi-year project for Moncada to get a strikeout rate all the way down to where he wants it to be. And uh, I think Garcia is a good guy to keep in mind when assessing that. Well, that does it for the recap of the White Sox Royal Series. Again, the White Sox 
are 26 and 29 on the season. So good start so far for the White Sox uh, in this upcoming rebuild year, of course. Uh, we thought this team was a 70 win team, and right now they're still they're projected at that because of what's going to be coming up in mid June uh, to end of July. Really nasty part of the schedule, uh, but it's fun while the White Sox are winning, and maybe they'll continue winning uh, or their winning ways into this weekend as the Cleveland Indians come into town. But before we preview that series, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek, with millions of live events. Uh, and a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves there's a better way of buying tickets. Search sports, live music, comedy, and more. SeatGeek has the tickets you are looking for all in one place in an industry that tends to stagnate. SeatGeek decided to stand up from the crowd as they built the fastest way to find tickets so you could stop searching for the perfect seat and start enjoying it. Why is SeatGeek better than the rest? A quick look at their app store shows over 50,000 five-star reviews, and they have a better process. SeatGeek rolls in millions of tickets from all over the web. They rate each ticket on a scale of 1 to 10, and they display them on an interactive seat map, and they break down the details. The green dots mean good deals, red dots are overpriced. A nice thing about SeatGeek as well, you can pick the option of including the fees and the tickets up front so you don't have the sticker shock when you go into the shopping cart. You can have the full price of the tickets with the fees included during your search. I really love that feature. Uh, plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets with confidence. And I use SeatGeek all the time to buy tickets, especially going to White Sox games. There's a bunch of great deals right now on SeatGeek for this upcoming weekend series between the White Sox and Indians. So if you got nothing planned this weekend and you decide at the last minute you want to go, definitely check out SeatGeek because our listeners get to save $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. All you have to do is just download the SeatGeek app and use our promo code SOXMACHINE. That's promo code Socks Machine for $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. And speaking of that weekend series against the Cleveland Indians, the Indians are 28 and 27 as they have won their last two games against the Boston Red Sox. As it appears that the Indians offense is starting to wake up a little bit, Jim, but in their last 10 games, they are 3 and 7. The season series between the White Sox and Indians is split. They are 4 and 4 against the White Sox this year. Very surprising as Cleveland has dominated the White Sox in the last couple of years. Your pitching problems for this series, it seems to be really one side in the first two games, and then it flips for the last two games. For the first two games, Thursday night at 7.10 p.m. Central Time, it is Carlos Carrasco, who is 2-0 against the White Sox this season and has not allowed a run against him. But if you look at his season stats, he's got a 4.60 ERA. So if it wasn't for the White Sox, Carlos Carrasco would be having a really bad start to 2019. Speaking of bad starts, he's going up against Manny Benway on Thursday. Friday, it is Trevor Bauer against Dylan Covey, which Covey's been pitching decently for the White Sox uh, in his last couple of starts. He's just been getting burned by one bad inning. And then on Saturday and Sunday, the tide turns for the White Sox on the pitching side. It'll be Jeffrey Rodriguez for the Indians on Saturday against Ivan Nova. And on Sunday, it is Zach Plesak against Lucas Giolito, as Giolito will close it out. So, Jim, if the White Sox can find a way uh, to score against Carlos Carrasco, I guess that's a good place to start. Can the White Sox finally solve Carlos Carrasco, who's been dominating this team since 2017? 
Uh, by solve, do you mean beat them or score. get a run? Just score. <laughs> okay, I think they can. I'll say two runs. All right, that's progress. It's better than zero. <sighs> but if they can find a way, okay, if they could find a way to split one of those two games, I think the White Sox could win this series. I think they could win three out of four. Yeah, because they took it to Bauer the last time. And speaking of Bauer, the Indians have been riding Trevor Bauer hard. I, I looked up his baseball reference page just to kind of see what he's been doing in his last couple of starts. You know, we talked about Ronaldo Lopez and his 118 pitch outing on Wednesday. Trevor Bauer is averaging 111 pitches per start. The Indians are riding him hard. Like, he is a pitcher they're probably going to trade. And they're going to spend uh, every pitch that they possibly can or get every pitch they possibly can out of that right arm from Trevor Bauer. And the last time the White Sox faced him, uh, the White Sox scored eight runs on May 6th as they hit two homers off Trevor Bauer. Do you think they can do it again? Uh, you know, they had a plan against him, it seemed like. And, you know, they were ready for his curveball. They, and, and Bauer threw a lot of hanging curveball. So it was partially, I think the White Sox had a plan and Bauer pitched right into it with some terrible pitches. So, you know, perhaps we'll see an adjustment and, uh, you know, Bauer mixes up a different way that the White Sox aren't ready for. But uh, if he pitches like he did last time, that looked more like a mortal pitcher the last time out. And, you know, you mentioned Bauer and, and, and the Indians trying to get every pitch they can out of him and you know Bauer being a weird guy who's like hyper capitalist you know he said that you know he only wants to go year to year on contracts and uh you know he has no intention of signing an extension he has no you know and I think he said like you know when he go, even goes to free agency he wants to go to year to year and mm-hmm. I wonder if this is the kind of thing where uh you know it really doesn't work in his favor if every team thinks this is the only year we have him like yeah I think about Chris Sale with the Red Sox and, you know, given Sale's shoulder and how he needed to be babied a little bit second half of last year and even the start of this season, because they had him for multiple years and then they signed him to extension and they have him there. So that really put, you know, his best in, I guess, both best interest in mind was to, you know, try to not overuse him when they didn't have to and save him for big moments. In this case, you know, with the, uh, with, with Bauer theoretically going year to year and not being extendable and everything, you know, maybe this is the way he's going to be used. It's something I'm just kind of curious about you know, if he if he does maintain this uh, mindset to where he's just going to try to max out one year contracts all the way. In two two months from now, Jim, if the Indians are still ten games behind the Twins and they're still a 500 team, I could see the Indians moving Trevor Bauer, but yeah. he's had a lot of mileage already this year. He, he's just two starts ago he threw 123 pitches. Yeah, no, it it could be something that teams uh, you know pay attention to. Francona's riding him hard, hard. So we'll see on how hard the Indians ride Trevor Bauer in his start Friday against the White Sox. So Jim thinks the White Sox can finally score some runs against Carlos Carrasco. It'd be a wonderful. I'd be excited. Uh, if they could even win that game, that'd be terrific. But uh, Carrasco's facing Manu Benuelos. And Dylan Cease in his start tonight against Indianapolis on Wednesday, seven innings pitched, two earned runs allowed, six strikeouts, two walks, and he did allow six hits. So a pretty good start from Dylan Cease. And uh, I, I wonder here, Jim, if Manny Benuelo struggles again, do you see a switch up coming? Probably not, um, just because the White Sox really seem intent to 
not rush anybody or not even be accused of rushing anybody. So I would be inclined to say, nope, it's going to be like three starts longer than you think or something like that. Uh, I am curious, like last time they went through this, this, uh, this rut where they had, you know, Covey and Nova and, and uh, bullpen game. And I thought like something's going to blow, you know, this is going to be something, you know, they're going to have a terrible start. One of these three and, and just going to have way too many innings for the bullpen to make up. And, and they're going to really have to reconsider it. And, and they were able to sneak through it uh, without, issue and so with all these off days coming in june this is really the last test but you know with the yankees they're using the opener now because they have i think three healthy starters so they've had to scramble for openers and uh-huh. i think they're uh with the opener they're using they're three and oh when they go with them and you know if the team like the yankees that are you know going for you know if the, and the yankees have you know as much pride as anybody in baseball you know given their history and their self both both their importance and their self-importance um you know and yeah, you know, their their expectations and everything. Yeah, you know, if they're you know stooping, you know, theory, you know, putting in quotes, scare quotes, stooping so low as to use an opener. You know, why would not the White Sox do it with Covey or Banuelos if they're only good to go for? You know why? Yeah, but I mean, like, there's no, you know, there's no real thing they can point to. You know, if the Yankees are doing it, you know, it's it's basically like anybody can do it. Just be happy, Jim, that they're using advanced metrics and they are adopting to some of the high-speed cameras. I'm with you, man. I'm with you. But after reading Rick Hahn's Q&A with James Fegan on The Athletic, it seems like the White Sox are in a – they think they're in a really good spot with how they are approaching the game. And they don't feel like they're behind the curve. All right. I think they're wrong. And (laughs) I'm I'm with you. But it's the way that the White Sox are thinking, from the front office to the clubhouse. Yeah, it's just... I, I, I yeah, don't get like it either. They're, they're telling, not showing. Like, there's no way for us to know. It's okay to be creative. Or copycats. Being innovative. <laughs> yeah, sure. like, whether they think they're copycats, like, just doing, you know, trying something that other that has worked for other teams. I mean, that's kind of what they're doing with their overall approach. I think, you know, they're not breaking any new ground uh, with their player development and so forth, so... Uh, you know, everything's copycat, but yeah, in this case, like you have Covey and, and Banuelos would seem to be screaming for a little bit of help getting through a top of the order the first time or setting up handedness in their favor, like getting Jordan Luplo off uh, Manny Banuelos' ass. <laughs> like just because I, you <laughs> so know, four home runs. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. use a little bit of help. Well, is there anything else that you're going to be paying attention to in this series? No, just, you know, the, the usual Eloy Jimenez and, uh, you know, seeing if he can get on track. He seems to have some good at bats and seems to be recognizing pitches and then gets himself out. So he's still fighting it. And, uh, Moncada's had, you know, the Homer was nice. He'd been you know, 16 games without one. So that helped. And Anderson's back in the lineup. So no more, just seeing how they stack up against a team that is, you know, the Indians have, they'd play better against the Red Sox, but they're kind of on the ropes. And if the White Sox managed to win the series while the twins had a good weekend, you know, that could be the kind of, uh, you know, not, a, not that it's like a must win for Cleveland, but at the same time, like if they're somehow 11 games back at the end of this weekend, then, uh, you know, that, that makes it a lot harder for them. And I, it would be fun to see the White Sox make it hard on Cleveland. Looking at the weather, there's a 91% chance of rain in Chicago Saturday afternoon. So pay attention to the weather if you're going to be heading to the weekend series between the White Sox and Indians. And we'll be recapping that series on Monday's Sox Machine podcast as it is 
this show, the Sox Machine Live, that will do it for this episode. Uh, but a couple of things for Monday. Uh, we've got a lot of content coming your guys' way regarding the Major League Baseball draft over the next couple of days. So if you're really interested on what could possibly happen for the Chicago White Sox in the Major League Baseball draft. There's going to be a draft profile for Adley Rushman. I don't want to get you guys' high, uh, hopes up too high, but there is an outside chance that Adley Rushman could drop to the White Sox third overall, which would be a borderline miracle, but we've seen it before in the past, so that's coming. Uh, you'll be able to even make your own picks. We're going to have a Sox Machine 2019 Major League Baseball draft pick them where you – We'll pick what teams uh, go with as far as their selections and those that do the best job with their guesses get to win some prizes from us. Uh, So very exciting. We'll also have the Sox Machine Draft Show. This is our fourth year doing this as we'll be streaming live starting at 5.30 p.m. Central Time on Monday, uh, previewing the Major League Baseball Draft and providing live analysis up to the White Sox first round pick, pick three. Uh, Joining me again will be Jimmy Osborne from Sox Machine and our friends over at Future Sox, James Fox and Brian Billick. Uh, will be with us. And again, you can listen to that stream either on SoxMachine.com or here on Mixler.com slash SoxMachine. And for Monday's show, our guest is going to be Eric Loggenhagen from Fangraphs, who will provide us the latest that he is hearing about as far as the rumors, not just for the White Sox with the third pick, but also their second round pick. And maybe on how the White Sox are approaching a new way coming up to this 2000 Major League Baseball draft, they may go prep heavy early, which would be a breath of fresh air. Uh, for the White Sox. So if you have questions for Eric and you support us on Patreon, make sure to get your questions in and we'll get those asked to Eric and you'll be able to listen to those on Monday's show. If you don't support us on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash machine. You get extra content, not just from the podcast, but you also get extra written content as well. And you can help support the show and site by signing up at patreon.com slash machine. And again, like I said, this concludes our episode of Sox Machine Live. Thank you guys so much for listening on the live stream at Mixler.com slash Sox Machine. If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show via iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. Sox Machine Live is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.